Good morning, everyone. The front row, that's impressive. Yeah, I'm glad you have the courage to sit up front. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. So great, great to see you all. What a blessing. Oh, man, now there's two. Good. I like it. That's good. It's good. A couple of things just to bring to your attention. We have, uh, so Sunday mornings, we have a prayer meeting starting at 9 to 9.30 in the back room. If anyone wants to pray before the service and also after the service, we do have a prayer table. So if you'd like to pray um, or pray with someone, if you see someone sitting there, pray with them. So it gives you an opportunity to, to pray with someone or to support others in prayer. And so that's open to everyone and uh, just encourage you to make use of the body to be praying for one another, to, to pray for the world and the, the, the things we see around us and commit our lives into his hands because he is the way, the truth, and the life. We have an awesome God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are awesome in everything that you do, that you are wise, that you have given us life through Jesus Christ, that we have hope and peace that does not rest on circumstances or the, this world at all, that we look to you to rejoice and to have peace and hope and comfort. And we thank you that you are gracious to extend those freely to us. And we ask, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit, you would give us understanding of your truth, that we would truly draw near to you in faith, Lord. And we, we believe in you, but Sometimes we have doubts. Sometimes we have unbelief that creeps in and we don't even see it. And I pray you would open our eyes to see our need to trust you completely, to rely on you continually, and to rejoice in you. Um, and we will do so now and forever. And may this message from your word uh, minister to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. So the passage is Job 38, starting in verse 39. You can turn there. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he held forth the principle that love, uh, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds others up or love edifies. And the verse immediately following that in 1 Corinthians 8, 2, it says, and if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. It's the wisest people who realize how little they actually know. Jesus interacted with scribes and Pharisees who were very proud of their knowledge of their law, but they remained ignorant of God. They weren't walking in God's ways. Knowledge of God works to humble us. The more we know of him, the more we re realize, wow, he is glorious. He is supreme and sovereign over all things. And if our knowledge of God and the scripture leads us to condemn others, well, then we haven't learned anything as we ought to know. Job and his friends had been having this discussion and God speaks to them out of this whirlwind in response to their discussion. And Job had asked questions his friends couldn't answer. Now God's like, well, you answered me. It's time for you to be on the stand, Job. And the, the premise is like, if Job, if you know what I know, if you can do what I can do, if you've seen what I've seen and gone where I've been, then you have a right to have your questions answered. But otherwise, you're opening your mouth without knowledge. And God begins at creation. He began at creation and said, where were you when I established the earth? And he used the imagery of building a house. And he said, you know, you build a house with a foundation. Well, I built the world. I, 
I established the universe, the heavens and the earth. You shut and lock your gate at night, but I shut in the sea with, uh, you know, you, you shut your house with gates and bars. I shut in the sea and it's great power. You swaddle infants, but God clothes the earth in water and clouds. The seal would be pressed into wax or to clay to produce an image. But God, he made the hills and the valleys and the mountain crags and the furrows in the earth. And he's like, that's what I do. That's how great I am. And he showed that he had not only done marvelous things in creating the universe and ordering it according to his wisdom, but he presently preserved it and he kept it going. He caused stars to be in their place and rain to fall on dry land where no one was. And after God had gone up into the heavens and talked about the things that he did there, now he comes to earth and he talks about animals. So today we're going to talk about many different animals that God's created and how they show how little we know, how little we can do really. And Adam was given dominion over all animals and the earth, but um, there's still so much to be learned from animals and things that really blow our minds, how they behave, how they survive. They expose really our ignorance, our frailty, and they thrive without us. God um, created the ant, a very small thing, but Solomon said, go to the ant sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. There's wisdom in that tiny little thing that God has made. And it moves us to admire God and to consider him. God continues in Job 38, verse 39. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lurk in their lairs to lie in wait? Who provides food for the raven when its young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? You have ants, you have the lion, the king of beasts, wild ravens. God provides for their needs to be fed and watered and to shelter and procreate. And all the animals mentioned today would have been found in the Middle East where Job lived in the days of Abraham. And he pointed out how lions and ravens did not require Job's assistance at all to feed them. In fact, he didn't know when they were hunting or what they were hunting. They were wild animals. And Job did not teach the lions to hunt. He did not teach their cubs to learn how to prowl around and how to live in a den or Ravens to build nests. Have you ever considered, like, you see that nest and you're like, how did the bird make this? And as a kid, maybe you tried and it was a pretty pathetic attempt. It's just woven so intricately. You're like, well, no one, no person taught this and no person could make this. Perched up in that tree. And to produce eggs that would be incubated and live. It's just wild. It's amazing. Wild animals are surprisingly self-sufficient and resilient. In all my life, I've heard about um, awareness of the destruction of animals' habitats and the formations of preserves. And I used to go to the San Diego Zoo and they would have, you know, endangered or, or critically endangered species and have breeding programs to help them survive. And they want to eliminate the black market for animal products or protect threatened or endangered species with legislation. Like there's all these acts we take to protect them. And for all the impact we have for good or ill in the animal kingdom, it's God who created lions to hunt. It's God who hears the cry of the ravens. He is able to provide for them. And we like to think that the future of a species or even the planet depends upon us, but 
let's remember God created animals. He provides for them too. Like don't take him out of the picture. We should be good stewards of what God's given us, but he's God who created. Years ago, we had several blue tongues that would make their way through our backyard and they'd sun themselves and I was always a bit concerned when the cat was coming around. Our neighbor had a cat and would take interest in these blue tongues. And, and I could feel very, after a while, I, I grew quite comfortable because the lizard could take care of itself. Like it would see the, the cat and just sit there and then it would hiss or it would just back into its hole under the deck. And you're like, you know, I'm like worrying about that skink. Could it, you know, how, how will it live? And it's doing just fine without me. And I felt very good that there's water for it. It's able to get snails and keep the garden free of them. And, and it's, it's free. It's free to, to live. And, and God was the reason that animal existed. And he continues here uh, in verse 1 of chapter 39. Do you know the time when the wild mountain goats bear young? Or can you mark when the deer gives birth? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Or do you know the time when they bear young, they bow down, they bring forth their young, they deliver their offspring. Their young ones are healthy. They grow strong with grain. They depart, depart and do not return to them. So he's going more into things that Job doesn't know. He's like, you don't, you don't uh, hunt for the, the lions or find food for the ravens. And you don't know the time when the mountain goats or the deer give birth or where they give birth. Now, he would have been able to answer this question if it was talking about his herds that he once had, his sheep. And he's like, oh, yes, it's that time of the year when sheep would be breeding or bearing young. But these are wild beasts. And most, if not all, the animals that we're talking about are wild. And that means it, they were beyond his knowledge. They wanted nothing to do with them. I remember taking a trip to Canada years ago. And one of my mates on the trip was a huge moose fanatic. Like he had moose in his house, pictures of moose, little statues of moose. He was totally into moose. And so we went to Canada and he's like, I am going to see a moose in the wild. And we spent days looking for a moose and we hours of up and down this great river. And there's no human soul to be seen and no moose either. But we did see one moose the last day for about a minute and it just saw us and kind of uh, just ambled off into the forest. And well, we saw a moose. So that was a big success. But it's like we, we saw lynx. We saw all these animals that I'd never seen before, but I never saw where they lived. I didn't see their young. And if I, I've driven by many deer in my life, and I couldn't tell you really anything useful about them. Like it was brown. <laughs> couldn't tell you if it was a, a male or a female, if they were with young or had born young at some point. Like I couldn't say anything. I'm like, yeah, it's a wild animal. God not only knew where and when the goats had given birth or the deer, but he can tell us about their young, that they're hardy, that, uh, you know, they're born precocial, that they will, that means they can walk at birth. So deer and goats, in, they, they are walking within minutes. And trotting around with fully developed eyes. And this question is not really strictly biological. Where it's like, what time of the year is the breeding or rutting season? Or how long are deer and goats pregnant, Job? Or the physical place? Like, right, you got it. It's like Job had never seen these things. And he hadn't even thought about them likely. And God's just saying, see all you don't know about a goat. About deer. That you've seen, but you don't really don't know anything about them. 
because they will go to a secluded place to give birth and raise their young. And it boggles my mind. I saw this video of a one day old goat just jumping around like, wow, so different than a person, right? Think of a baby one day old and a goat one day old, totally different in the way they move and behave. They're able to do that because God created them to. It boggles my mind. I read of their eyesight that they can see 320 degrees around them. And they are able to see predators from afar. How baby deer are born without scent so that predators cannot find them. And these articles that I'm reading said the eyes of a goat are placed in such a way that they can see like this. I'm like placed. And in the same article, it says it took all these years to develop or evolve into that ability. And I'm like, oh, this just doesn't make sense. If they were placed there, they had to be put there. They, they, were, they were designed to be that way. If they were placed by who? who? Who placed them? To speak of animals, their instinct and qualities from a naturalistic, godless perspective, it robs God of glory for the creatures he created. And so often we have engineers and people looking at nature and seeing how things move, like the, the, the skin on a shark how it's designed and can we design something like that? The feet of a gecko, how it sticks to things. Can we make something that's like that? So we look to nature to try to imitate, to make our things better. And I love it that deer and goat, goats, they're so, they live so freely and independently, we can call them pests without us doing anything. Continuing in verse five, who set the wild donkey free? Who loosed the bonds of the onager whose home I have made the wilderness and the barren land it's dwelling. He scorns the tumult of the city. He does not heed the shouts of the driver. The range of the mountains is his pasture and he searches after every green thing. It's amazing how wild donkeys and other animals can thrive in barren desolate places. It's estimated that there's millions of feral donkeys in Australia. From what I've read today, donkeys are put into three categories, the wild, feral, or domesticated. And the wild is the largest of the bunch, like physically built. Um, and I was reading about an Australian grazier who captures wild donkeys to use as uh, like his pet guards. They guard his property and his other animals. And he described them as a vicious powerhouse. He's like, you, you need to be really careful around these wild donkeys because they are strong and they are smart. And they would take motorbikes and kind of corral them. They're social animals, but they have an, inter, inter, an independence about them. They go from herd to herd and they usually stay in small herds, but they're not always with the same uh, other donkeys. And they prefer the solitude rather than the city life. Like if you're at a cafe, you'll have a couple of pigeons waddle up to you to see if it'll be right among your feet to see if you have any, anything to give them. But a donkey will not do that. They can smell you a long way away and they will get away from you. So you would have to work hard to tame them. And onagers, they've never been domesticated. They are herbivores. They're constantly foraging for vegetation and, and horses even struggle to keep pace with them because they can run at the pace of a thoroughbred racing horse. This is the Asiatic wild ass. They run and they're hard to catch. 
It's interesting too how God created animals with all these distinct temperaments. And, and within a breed, there's different temperaments too. And God's done the same thing with people. See what the Lord said to Hagar before she gave birth to the child she carried in Genesis 16, 11, and 12. It says, and the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. The name Ishmael means God hears. And God's response to Hagar's affliction and cry was to say, you're going to have a wild donkey of a son. He is going to, and that's the word that's used. It's like the word for wild donkey. He says, that's what kind of man he is going to be. He is going to be wild. He is not going to be tamed. He is going to cause a bit of trouble wherever he goes. And that's just his personality. God created and set wild donkeys free and he gave animals and people individual temperaments and God sustained them. He provided for them. And there's a place in the animal kingdom for wild and domesticated donkeys. And God has a place in the kingdom of God, even for wild people who willingly submit to him in faith who are willing to come when he calls them, who are willing to trust him. And God does more than tame us. He transforms us with the Holy Spirit as we trust in Jesus Christ. As we're born again, he indwells us. Maybe you can identify with uh, Ishmael and his temperament. Or maybe you think uh, like you have someone in your family, someone you know who's like that. But this was not a punishment It wasn't because of her bad parenting or a punishment to Hagar at all. It's how God made him. And we must trust that God is wise in everything that he's made. And he has purposes too that we can rely on. Job 39 verse 9. Will the wild ox be willing to serve you? Will he bed by your manger? Can you bind the wild ox in the furrow with ropes? Or will he plow the valleys behind you? Will you trust him because his strength is great or will you leave your labor to him? Will you trust him to bring home your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The next animal is the wild ox believed to be the now extinct Arak, which stood about two meters tall. It's quite a large ox and takes a great deal of patience to train an animal, much less an ox and a wild one. Uh, which is probably not something you would try to attempt. Anyone here ever trained an ox? No, no ox trainers out there. It like they recommend that if you're going to train an ox to have a yoke, you, you start rope training them weeks after being born. You make them dependent upon you from birth. And then after a few months, you get them fitted with a very small yoke and they start graduating larger and larger yokes as they grow to full size. And so during this whole process, you have tamed them. You've gentled them to a point where they will be able to pull a load and to know if they get out of the paddock, they know where to go, to go home. The great size, the aggression, the power of an ox, not to mention its massive horns, It would make training ridiculous, impossible. You would never try it. It wanted nothing to do with you, much less bed down by your manger. And he says, can you bind the wild ox? Can you make him work for you? Will you trust him to bring your grain to your threshing floor? 
That's no, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't trust that wild beast at all. I'm going to keep my eyes on him and I'm going to get away from him if I can. Just trying to pull a wild ox with a rope. Like, congratulations, you've roped your first wild ox. Now pull it. An ox weighs up to 1,500 kilos and can pull twice its weight. I liked playing tug-of-war with my dog as a kid. But can you imagine trying to tug-of-war with an ox just to see if you could do it? Forget about it. It's not going to happen. Compared to a wild ox, Job was powerless. He couldn't overcome the will of the ox. He couldn't coax it with treats or get it to do what he wanted because he was kind to it like it's a wild animal. He couldn't even trust it. And it can run 40 Ks an hour. So it's a bit overwhelming with the suggestion here. And I, I suspect most of us, having never trained an ox, have never had an ox trampling through our garden beds or... Um, up for adoption at the RSPCA. We're like, that would be cool. Yeah, have an ox in the backyard. The fact is, many of us have had domesticated pets, which much or less fit the description of this wild ox. We don't trust it. We haven't trained it. We're like, hmm. Yeah, the, the animal has a lot of leeway because we don't have that sort of control one reason why animal shelters have a lot of animals, a lot of cats and dogs, it's not primarily due to overpopulation, but really people, for whatever reason, are unable to care for the animal. And it's not a fault of the, the owner or the, the pet, but it shows the realistic challenges of domesticated pet ownership. There's a lot that goes into that. And now you're talking about a wild bull that you're just going to rope and control and have it do whatever you want. He's like, can you do that, Job? Can you control that one animal? He's like, oh, nope. Verse 13, the wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are, are her wings and pinions like the kindly storks? For she leaves her eggs on the ground and warms them in the dust. She forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may break them. She treats her young harshly as though they were not hers. Her labor is in vain without concern because God deprived her of wisdom and did not endow her with understanding. When she lifts herself on high, she scorns the horse and its rider. The Arabian ostrich was hunted to extinction in the 20th century. Uh, it has feathered wings, but it doesn't use them to fly. It, it will flap them, but it doesn't fly, being a flightless bird. Ostriches today, they grow to be 2.7 meters tall, and they can run 70 kilometers per hour, so they're not fussed to get away from a horse. They just run. And uh, they do lay those large eggs. Any guesses on how much they weigh? 1.3 kilos. And they're about 24 eggs worth of a chicken egg. Interestingly, they lay the largest egg in the world, but it's the smallest egg in the world as far as body to egg size ratio. So it's like, that is a big bird. <laughs> Verse 14, it says, they make their nests on the ground and they have what's called a dump nest where all the, the animals, all the ostriches in that flock will lay their eggs in one area and they'll incubate them. There's nothing in the behavior of an ostrich that makes you think that it cares for or values its young in any way. 
and they'll protect the nest. But as soon as those children are born, those little ostriches, I don't know what they're called, um, but they're born precocial. They have all their feathers. They can, they can walk and see perfectly. They're able to forage and eat what they find. And it's staying in a flock together that affords them much protection rather than parental affection. There's just nothing that you would see really endearing about the way that an ostrich raises their young. And God explains why they seem harsh or even cruel. It says, because God deprived her of wisdom and did not endow her with understanding. So God has given us understanding that he has not given the ostrich. Ostriches don't mind. But we might mind. I say, that doesn't seem right. You know, God gave someone one kind of animal understanding, and, but he would deprive the ostrich of understanding. Well, imagine the created finding fault with the creator. That we would say, this isn't right, God, the thing that you've made. Why didn't you give the ostrich wisdom? Why didn't you give these animals understanding? Well, Paul speaks about this in Romans 9, verse 20, that we are the ones who are twisted. We are the ones who have distorted views about what God should do with his things when he's the creator and he, he has created us by his grace. It's unfair and unjust for sinners to demand what God ought to do. It says in Romans 9, 20 and 21, but indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed to him say to, to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? The point there is, is God beholden to mankind at all? Must he answer to us for the things that he chooses to do when he is altogether wise, when he's given us all the understanding we have? Who are we to accuse God of folly? Because when we look at the animal kingdom, we say he thought of everything. He's thought of things that I never even knew about. We can't conceive or control of what God's created. So why criticize his power to make a vessel for honor or dishonor? Because God already has all honor and glory. The moment he created anything, it was a deliberate choice to allow what is dishonorable. I mean, think about that. He has all honor. He has all glory, but he chose to create us. He chose to create animals and through us, by his grace, he receives glory. God has given us understanding the ostrich lacks. And so we can feel God has deprived us of something. We would like the endowments of wealth, of honor, of notoriety that others may possess. And this envy works in us to really be disappointed or dissatisfied with all that God's freely given us. Because we, we look at the ostrich and go, well, how come that ostrich doesn't have the understanding? We say, well, how, how come I don't have that understanding? Why don't I have this or that? Why don't they have this? This is where faith by knowledge of God, it, it works to change our thinking. Please turn to 2 Peter 1, 1 through 4. 2 Peter chapter 1, 1 through 4. Recognizing what God has already given us, it should 
provoke in us gratitude that we don't deserve it. We don't deserve him, yet he delights in us. 2 Peter 1, starting in verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given has been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So this precious faith we've obtained, how did we obtain it? Well, by knowledge and trust in Christ by grace, by grace we have received. And it says, according to his divine power, God has given, not may give, might could, should, or will, he said, has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God did not withhold anything from the ostrich needed to survive and to thrive even in a barren wasteland. And the same is true for us in every sense, in this life and in the life to come. He hasn't deprived us of anything we need to live and to live forever, that abundant life that we have through faith in Christ. We should be grateful for what God has given us. Say, God's given us what we need in himself and rejoice in him. Back to Job 39, verse 19. Have you given the horse strength? Have you clothed his neck with thunder? Can you frighten him like a locust? His majestic snorting strikes terror. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He gallops into the clash of arms. He mocks at fear and is not frightened, nor does he turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the glittering spear and javelin. He devours the distance with fierceness and rage, nor does he come to a halt because the trumpet has sounded. At the blast of the trumpet, he says, aha. He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of captains and shouting. It was God, not Job, who gave the horse strength as they galloped with those thundering hooves. Wild horses, they are a prey animal. They may be very large, but they choose flight over fight. They can fight and kick and bite if cornered, but they are a prey animal. And they have a very developed sense of smell. It's in between people and like dogs and rats. Apparently have a really good sense of smell. But the horses are kind of in the middle. They can smell you far away. And when they smell you, they leave. They don't want to be near people. And if you are to capture one, they will exhibit some self-destructive behavior. They will run against the corral or the pen to try to escape and injure themselves. So it can be a dangerous proposition. Horses have long been gentled, bred, and trained, domesticated. We know that they were used to pull chariots. That, that uh, in the book of Exodus, they had chariots and horsemen that were employed to chase the Israelites. And once it's, I read one place, it's like horses have been programmed to ser- to look for leadership. And if they find that leadership in a person, they can be trained by them and they will run into a battle. Um, even though every natural instinct is to run away from the battle, they can overcome that natural fear of people and charge into the battle bravely because of the trust in their uh, rider. 
I was reading a passage on horses and warfare as a web website because I've never, I've never really ridden a horse but one time and definitely not trained a horse for battle. Uh, it says, much training was required to overcome that horse's natural instinct to flee from noise, the smell of blood, and the confusion of combat. Horses had to learn to face weaponry of the enemy and not panic, even if struck, and learn to accept any sudden or unusual movements of their riders while utilizing a weapon or avoiding one. And the, you've watched the Westerns where they have like pistols or the rifles and they're on horseback. And I'm like, shouldn't that scare the horse? But there is intense, and feel free to read up on it, but the, the way to train a horse to not be skittish, it's really involved and takes a lot of time. But it gets to a point where it knows it's not a threat and it trusts its master. So to, question God, to answer God's question, the best trainers, riders in the world, they didn't give their horses strength. Men, they're running from battle and the horse is charging into it like a Ah, let's go. Like, not worried at all. It says they smell the battle from afar. Verse 26. Does the hawk fly by your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle mount up at your command and make its nest on high? On the rock it dwells and resides, on the crag of the rock and the stronghold. From there it spies out the prey. Its eyes observe from afar. Its young ones suck up blood. And where the slain are, there it is. So he speaks here of hawks, eagles. The Hebrew word could also include vultures, birds of prey. They fly at great heights and they have vision far superior to a human. I read that hawks can see twice as far as people, that they can see, uh, that eagles, they can see rabbits 3.2 Ks away. I'm like, wow, there's a rabbit hopping around. They're like, hello, 240 Ks an hour dive bombing that thing. They can see a mouse from 200 meters up. A mouse moving. Like my, my eyes are just getting worse and worse. But it's amazing that you have a creature that can see that clearly. They make their homes in these rocky crags where no one else can go. It's possible that Job nor you or I have ever seen a hawk's nest. I, we've, some people have been to hawk's nest, but have you seen a hawk's nest? And if you have, that's great. But uh, there's a lot that you haven't seen. And he's like, do they soar or make their nests up there? Because you taught them that? You told them that's where you should be? Job's like, no, of course not. I don't even know where it is. At uh, Camp Kedron, we had this paper airplane making contract test years ago. And most of the creations were better at falling than flying, right? You throw it. And just kind of, it's like, compare that to the eagle. Or the hawk that God has made, where it's a living, seeing, soaring, communicating, hunting, diving, reproducing hawk that builds its nest on high. The vultures that they can soar 1,200 meters as they're looking for carrion. It's just pretty overwhelming. So it's summed up here. Job 40 verse 1. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. 
text makes it clear that Job knew that God was talking to him. He had singled him out and said, if you've got, uh, if you, should you be correcting me? Should you be contending with me? And you need to answer for that. And Job had said previously in Job 13, 22 about God, then call and I will answer. Let me speak. Then you respond to me. So Job had been talking a pretty big game until God started talking. And then he realized, wow, I really overstepped there. I thought I was in the right, but now I realize that I'm very insignificant, very small. That's the word vile. It's corrupt, small, tiny. I'm contemptible. It's kind of like Job and his friends. They were like, you know, two, a bunch of kids arguing with each other. And dad's been around the corner listening the whole time. And he walks in the room and goes, what were you saying? And it's like, uh, a little stammering, backpedaling, because now there's some authority in the room. And now God speaks to Job. And he's like, answer me. And Job's like, you know, I was wrong to open my mouth before. I'm not going to make that mistake again. I'm done talking. Um, like I'll only incriminate myself further. I have no justification for saying the things I've said. He's seeing God in his glory in the things he's created and the things that he does and the animals, these wild creatures that he designed and provided for. He's humbled. He's not quite yet brought to repentance. That will happen next week. So the understanding that God had given Job mixed with pride, it moved him to argue with God, to rebuke God, to criticize him as if he had made a mistake. And so using these wild animals, God demonstrates how much Job didn't know what he could not do, what he could not control. And thus was foolish to question God as if he didn't know what he was doing. Sometimes we think we know better than God. We think he should do something. We think he should intervene. They should just do something here or stop something there. When you watch those documentaries and you see the lion chasing the goat and we're like, oh, go goat. <laughs> don't, don't, I hope he gets away. Or when that, you know, the mouse is getting snatched up from the ground. We're like, ah, oh, we just, we, we, we want the underdog to, you know, and sometimes they do get away, but we realize that the predator's still there. And there's danger. We don't like to see the cheetah running down the ostrich, bringing it down. When we see suffering of innocent people, when we ourselves are suffering, we want God to immediately step in. We want the conflict to cease. We want him to protect the innocent. We want him to smite the evildoers. Like Absalom's scheme was brought upon his own head, we want to see them hanging up who have done the evil. Now the psalmist Asaph, he very much had this view and he was becoming disillusioned because he's like, I've been serving God. I've been trusting him, but where is God when I need him? Where's the help when I cry out to God? Nothing seems to be changing. God seems ignorant of the suffering of the victims. But when he went into the Lord's presence, he had this revelation that God will destroy the wicked forever and that God was his salvation forever. Please turn to Psalm 73, starting in verse 20. And this is when that realization had hit home for Asaph. When he realized how wrong he had been thinking about God, the God he, he worshiped and trusted in that moment, he wasn't relying upon him. And this is when it hit home. 
73 verse 20. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See the change in Asaph there. He goes from being vexed about what God wasn't doing or how he wasn't helping or what he wasn't doing what he wanted him to do to see how beastly his unbelief and ignorance was. So the wicked seemed to prosper. But what, has, what was God doing with him? He's like, he's holding my hand. He's guiding me right now. He's going to receive me into glory. Like he's with me, he's guiding me, and he knows where he's taking me into his presence forever. And he rejoiced in him. He's like, what hope do I have in heaven and earth but you? Like, where else can I look? There is none. It's only in him. Compared to, I mean, what do, do any of us know or do compared to God? He is glorious and good. And he's included those who trust him in his glorious plans for eternity. He is the strength of our heart and portion forever. So rather than rebuking God or criticizing him, let's rejoice and rest in him, responding in humility to his love. Because this is, see how he treated Asaph. This is what he does for us. He's holding your hand. He's bringing you through. He knows where he's bringing you into eternal glory and rejoice in him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you do allow struggles and difficulties and trials, even like Job endured, though a righteous man, so that he could see his need for you. You allowed Asaph to suffer and to struggle with these thoughts so that he could have a revelation that would change his whole outlook, that you're holding his hand and you're guiding him and receiving him into glory. Lord, thank you for sending Jesus and that you've opened our eyes to see him, that we have received him by grace through faith and that we have a hope in heaven. We do pray for those, Lord, who are suffering, for the struggles in the world today and the warfare that's going on, for uh, the conflict in houses and in, in marriages and in workplaces and conflicted hearts, Lord, torn with hypocrisy, torn with, with bitterness and sin and vengeance. Lord, I pray that you would minister your truth to our hearts of how great you are, that we would look at these animals and just wonder and marvel over what you've made and what you do and how you also have made us. And you are wise to know exactly how to give us everything we need for life and godliness to survive and to thrive, to have an abundant life now and forever in your presence. Pray we would receive that, Lord. We would walk in it, that the joy of the Lord would be our strength that we'd rely upon you, not just believe in you, but trust you today with everything that you will bring about, knowing you are good and compassionate, full of mercy, that you're a healer, a comforter, a helper, and the lover of our souls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.